something the other day about Colossians, and, and what it said was, the main theme in Colossians is Christ is supreme, so live like it. And I like that because many times, um, at least as Americans, we like to do something. We want to accomplish something. We want to have application. Many times, uh, Bible studies, um, rather than starting with what the passage was saying to the original readers, they'll actually just draw application and never really get the context. And that's where we can kind of get ourselves in trouble. But in the context of Colossians, um, Paul is writing to this group, and he's trying to reaffirm them in the faith that they've already believed. Uh, many times we believe things and then we don't believe them out to their farthest reach. We kind of stop at the beginning and we go, okay, well, I've arrived. You know, and if a baby would arrive at birth and be born alive and yet never grow or start to eat real food or, you know, but to stay on the milk for its entire life, what would you make assumptions about it? That it was sick that it was anemic, that it, it can't grow because it's never learned to partake of the food that its body was made to eat. And so in the same way, in the Christian life, we have to be careful that we don't just stop at the basic principles and not learn the deeper things. But here's the deal. These, there, were, there were those that came to the Colossians and wanted to teach them the deeper things. But the problem was is these deeper things actually, instead of staying in line with Christ himself, they departed from the faith. They had this outward um, appearance of godliness, and yet if you really look down deep into them, they denied Christ completely. They were almost atheistic, even though they had the outward appearance of godly religion. And so Paul writes to warn them. And in the book of Colossians in chapter 1, we see the preeminence of Christ. And what that means is that Christ is first of importance and he's also first in starting the church. He, he really was before the world. He was before creation. He was before um, redemption. He was before the church. Um, and he was in, in first importance in Paul's own ministry. And so I wrote down a couple of things from chapter 1 to kind of summarize. But Paul shows that Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. He is. Not he will be, but he already is. And the things that he's preeminent in, the things that he's of first importance and uh, of first in, um, not just importance, um, but also first in uh, leadership, is in the gospel. Paul shows that Christ is preeminent in the gospel, that he is the very fulfillment of the gospel. The gospel says that, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we couldn't do anything to change that, and so Christ came to fulfill every righteous requirement of the law to make us righteous before God. And that he died the death that we deserve. He was buried. He was risen from the dead. And because of that, he offers salvation to all those who would believe in him. So he's first in the gospel. He's uh, first of importance in redemption. Redemption just means to be bought back. Redeemed. You don't need to be redeemed unless you were sold. And so we were sold over as slaves to sin, and Christ died so that we could be bought back. He was the ransom money. You ever watch one of those movies where they steal some famous guy or some rich guy's kids, and they say, if you give us one gajillion zillion dollars, you can have your kids back. Well, that's essentially what Satan said. He said, I, I have your, your people that you love, your creation people, and I have them as my own. They're slaves to me now. And so unless you do something, you'll never get them back except that redemption was because we sinned against God. 
And so since we sinned against God, we deserve to be punished for that sin. God's not unjust to just, you know, eh, you know I'll let you in even though you've sinned and, and there's no salvation for you. I'll just let you in on your own good works. He says you have to ha- be redeemed. And so he sent Christ to be our redemption. He was the payment that turned away the wrath of God. And then Christ is first in creation, uh, the creation that we see, the creation that we don't see. It was all created by him, it was created for him, and he continues to hold it all together. He's preeminent in creation. Um, He's preeminent in the church. Christ died to start the church, but he is also the head of the church. He's the head. He's the one that leads it and guides it. And if he's not leading it and guiding it, it's not the church. So if your life is not led by the Lord Jesus himself, then you're not a part of the church. The church is led by Jesus Christ as the head. Just like our bodies, our physical bodies, if, if our heads are cut off, not to be you know, like that, but if our head was cut off, um, basically the brain that tells the rest of the body what to do, it's dead. Even if, just like when you go and, and take some chickens and you want to make a meal out of them, that, that, you know, we don't do this anymore, but if you were raised on a farm and you cut off the chicken's head, the, the, the body's running around, but it's not being led by the head. It, it, and until it loses its nerve function and all the adrenaline or whatever's going on, it, it's really not being led in a direction that it can see. It's just running around like a chicken with a head cut off. It, it, no direction. It's expending energy, but to no avail. It's all in vain. And so in the same way, we can be, as the church, if we're not careful, we can be outside of the submission and the leadership of the Lord Jesus, and all we're doing in the sight of the Lord is we're running around like chickens with our head cut off. And a couple of weeks ago, I went through this little crisis in my mind, and I was stressed out by everything that was going on, and I'm like, why am I so stressed out? Well, the things that I was doing weren't bad things. I wasn't sinning. But I didn't have any peace, and the reason I didn't have any peace was because I wasn't sure if the things that I had filled my life with were actually things that Jesus wanted me to do. So I I had to stop and go, no peace. I need to talk to the King of Peace. I need to find out if these things are the things I'm actually supposed to be doing, and if it is, I need to stop whining. And so I I did that. I spent some time with the Lord. I was like, Lord, what do you want me to be doing with my life? And am I spinning my wheels in directions that I'm not supposed to? And he gave me peace because he reminded me that I put you in this spot. I put you in this spot. I gave you this to do. Grow as you're planted. And then I just moved on. And so he is preeminent in the church. He should be leading our lives individually. And as a church body, he is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. No pastor, no leader. At the very most, I'm supposed to be an under shepherd under, under, shepherd, under the commission and under the leading of Jesus himself. And so uh, Paul doesn't stop with these overarching themes. He makes it personal. He said, Christ is also preeminent in my ministry. Paul writes this. He says, the message I shared with you, the way that I shared it with you, the way that I continue to lead, it's all under the leadership of Jesus Christ. He's preeminent. He is the, of the first importance in my life, and everything that I do flows out of my relationship with him. So in chapter 2, we move on. Paul expressing these themes. He wants to make it, uh, and, and he wants to discuss with these people that are being tempted away from the faith in Jesus, making him first. He wants to kind of defend the gospel. He wants to defend Christ's preeminence. 
in the lives of these believers because they're being tempted away, like I said earlier, by things that seem godly and yet on the inward really are far from God. And he wants to point this out. He wants to shine the light of, of the truth on these practices that they've really taken into their lives and just swallowed them as if they're things of God. He wants to warn them. So he makes a defense for Christ's preeminence, and he warns them against empty philosophies, which we looked at in verse 1 through 10 last week. And then he warns them about religious legalism and man-made discipline. And so uh, what we need to just say very clearly is that empty philosophies are not following Christ as number one. And religious legalism, where we say, well, I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this, that's not following Christ. That's just not doing certain things. And then also, picking up these disciplines that we want to pick up, things that we like to embrace that we think will make us more holy in the sight of God, will actually not. They're in vain. And so we need to be careful that we're not just doing the, essentially the traditions of men in place of the commandments of God. And we'll look at that. So um, in chapter 3 and 4, what we'll get to is not only chapter 1 was preeminence of God declared, chapter 2 is the preeminence of God defended, and then in chapter 3 and 4 we'll see the preeminence of God and how it's demonstrated into the lives of believers. Because I don't know about you guys, but theory is great, but I want to go and practice it. What does that look like in my situation? And Paul gets to that in chapter 3 and 4. So before we get started, I want to uh, read the I want to read this article that somebody gave me a couple of weeks ago. I meant to read it last week and I, I ran out of time. Imagine that. But it's written by this man by the name of Kevin DeYoung, and it was found on the website of the Gospel Coalition. It's a blog. Everybody likes reading blogs. Everybody's got an opinion. But in this article, it says this, and the article is called, What We Need the Most. He says, The biggest need in your life and in mine is to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that more evangelism, more prayer, and more fruitfulness and more holiness will flow from the fountain of our lives only when we start drinking more deeply of Christ. And I like it because it has a picture of a drinking fountain. Now today, in our day of germophobia, many of us won't get near one of those things. I still drink from them because I don't care, but in because I'm more holy, right? You know, obviously. But I like that idea of a drinking fountain. And so he, he says, these things that we typically focus on, sharing our faith, more prayer, more fruitfulness, more holiness, it will flow from the fountain of our lives, and it will, but he says, only when we start drinking more deeply of Christ. And then he goes on to explain that. He says, if you want to be more merciful, he says, look upon Jesus who cried out at the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you want to be more loving, look upon Jesus who ate with sinners and welcomed repentant prostitutes and tax collectors into the kingdom. If you want to be purer, look upon Jesus whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So if you want to be pure, look at Jesus who is pure. And then he says, if you want more courage in the face of lies and injustice, look upon Jesus who drove out the money changers from the temple with a whip. If you want to be stronger in the midst of suffering, look upon Jesus who did not revile when reviled, and he submitted himself wholly to the will of his Father. 
If you want to grow in grace, look upon Jesus who reinstated Peter after he denied his Lord three times. If you want more tenderness in your life, look upon Jesus who took the little children upon his lap and he blessed them. If you want to display the diverse excellencies of God, look upon Jesus who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He says our main problem is not lack of time or resources or the annoying people in our lives. Your main problem and mine is that we do not see enough the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We are not amazed by him anymore. We do not stand in awe of him. We are not rendered speechless in his presence. Too many of us are toying around with gimmicks and looking for quick fixes and miracle cures. Too many of us are digging deep inside ourselves for the change that we want. Too many of us spend all of our time tinkering with sports and the internet and home repairs while neglecting the one thing that is most needful, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to see him in the preaching of the word, to gaze upon him in the scriptures, and to slowly meditate upon the pages of the Bible, to spend uninterrupted, unhurried time with the Lord. This is what we need. He says, therefore, let us plead with God that we might behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Implore him for eyes to see. Pray persistently and passionately to know him more, because there is no growing apart from gazing, and there is no becoming like Christ without beholding him in his glory. And so I read that to you, not so you guys can feel super convicted, but because when I read it, I was super convicted. And so Paul, this is the point of Paul's letter. He says, Jesus is everything we need. And we know that we assent to that piece of information. But what are we doing about it? Are we really gazing upon Jesus as the preeminent, as the one that's most important, that should have the most pull in our spiritual lives? Or are we assenting to the knowledge that Jesus is everything we need, but drawing everything we need from other areas? And so as he writes this, Remember last week we were reading in, in chapter 2, and, or uh, verse 1 through 10, but he, now he writes in verse 11 through 23, no longer talking about philosophies, but now he's going to talk about legalism and man's way to become right in the sight of God. So in verse 11, well, we'll start in verse 8. He wrote in verse 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Jesus Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Verse 11, in him, you notice that phrase over and over again, in him. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision that was made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he speaks to this group who are, are kind of priding themselves in their outward religious acts, but their hearts are far from God. And I say this because Paul's writing to this group, and he's not writing to them about something that's new. People of, from all ages have always tried to relink with God based on what they can do 
to show that they're righteous in the sight of God, in their self-righteousness versus God's righteousness. And so these Jewish believers, many of them became Christians, but they had something that they added to the gospel. They said, in order to be saved, you have to fulfill the law to please God and become a Jew and then get saved. You had to take this first step and then you had to go to the next one. But Jesus didn't come to die for our sins so that we could go back to making sacrifices on an altar. He is the sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of all the Israelite believers were doing by faith. They were trusting that God is to be worshipped in a certain way and he prescribes it. And so they did what he told them to do. So now that that law has been fulfilled by Christ, then the law isn't got been, it's not been getting, gotten rid of, but it's been fulfilled by Jesus. And so in the same way, we follow God by faith, by doing what God says through Jesus Christ. And so here in Colossians, he talks about two things. He talks about these two rituals. One is uh, circumcision and one is baptism. And so he's not telling them that they're not of any good. He's telling them that they're only uh, things that point us to Christ. And so in verse 11 and 12, he essentially says, um, talking about circumcision, he says, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So how's that even possible? I, I had a son just a year ago in April and they asked us, are you going to have him circumcised? So it's a surgery where they remove this flesh, and it, many times in many cultures this is done. It's not a new thing to the Israelites. But what God told them in the Old Testament was to show that you are my people, you're set apart, you're going to do this circumcision on the eighth day. And on the eighth day, the certain vitamin enters your system by the creation of the body by God that your blood coagulates. I think that's pretty neat. Uh, so they wouldn't do it before the eighth day. God said, hey, on the eighth day, knowing full and well how our bodies were made, he knew this certain vitamin would come into the system and it would help them fight off infection. Before then, it would be dangerous. They could bleed out. And so they would do this surgery. But this surgery was only an outward sign that they were dedicated to God. But here's the deal. No one else would know you had this surgery except between you and your family and God. I've always kind of been confused about that until just this morning. No one else would know. It's not like you would show people, obviously. And so he says, here's the deal. This circumcision that you've been given in Christ is not just an outward circumcision. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's one that's between you and God. It's this set-apartedness that is visible between you and God. But if it's only a surgery, then it's of no good. Because nothing we can do to our outward body can make us righteous in the sight of God. Only what Jesus has done for us. And so in verse 11 and 12, it was a sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people. It was a physical surgery that doesn't matter if your heart, mind, and soul are not also dedicated to God. And I like this because in Romans chapter 2, verse 25, Paul's already written about this. He says, Circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the whole law. He says, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So with the law, if you only fulfill one command and nothing else, then you're still a lawbreaker and you still aren't right before God. 
So he says, if you've fulfilled this, good for you. You've obeyed the command of God. But if you don't fulfill the whole law, then it's of no good to you. He says, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision in your eyes? He says, and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision, you are a transgressor of the law? And then he says this in verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is truly a Jew, and he means in the sake of not as your descendant, but as a follower of God, a person who is set apart in God's chosen people. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. They were boasting to men, hey, I'm circumcised. I'm of the stock of Israel. And he says, well, your salvation is not based on what men think of you. It's what, men, what God thinks of you. And if you're right in God's sight by him circumcising your heart, in other words, making you sensitive to him and doing heart surgery on you, giving you a new source for why you do what you do, that's where the change comes from. So many times in the Old Testament, God warned his people to turn from their sins and instead of just experiencing an outward circumcision, and I'll stop saying that word in a minute, I promise, and experience a spiritual circumcision of the heart. Repent of your sins. You're, you're trying to be right only by your actions. And says, basically, the prophets would say, God wants your hearts to be right. Turn from your sinfulness. This can also be done with baptism, though. Many times, if you talk to somebody, you go, hey, do you know Jesus? They'll tell you about how they were baptized 20 years ago. I didn't ask you if you got baptized. I asked you if you know Jesus. And there are many, many people Many, many people in religious Bible Belt communities that were baptized at a church camp when they were eight years old, and no matter how they're living, even if they're living like hell, you ask them if they've been forgiven of their sins and they, if they believe in Jesus, and, and if they're going to heaven, if you ask them that, they will tell you, I was baptized in a church camp when I was eight years old. And you have to stop there and go, that's not what I asked you. I want to know if you're right with God. Baptism can't do that. Circumcision can't do that. It is a sign that you have obeyed the, God, the Lord in one thing, but really we should be able to point to our lives and say, by the grace of God, I've been saved, and I'm not perfect yet, but God is continuing by His grace to transform my life and make me more like Jesus. And I trust in Jesus for what He has done to be saved. But these were not doing that. So in verse 11 and 12, we contrast circumcision with being a believer in Jesus. In circumcision, there was an external surgery. In being a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus, God has already done heart surgery on you, which affects every member of your body. In circumcision, one part of your body is set apart for God. And as being a believer of Jesus, your whole body of sins has been crucified with Christ on the cross. You are completely set apart for the use of God. In circumcision, it's our circ- a physical circumcision is done with hands, but a spiritual circumcision is done without hands. Circumcision is not done with help, excuse me, is done not... 
physical circumcision cannot help you with your sin battle. If you're battling against sin, doing something outwardly to prove you're righteous to God won't change your sin pattern. You'll still be a slave to sin. But spiritual circumcision and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon you, a sensitive heart to the things of God, will enable a person to overcome and to conquer sin. And that's one of the biggest problems they had. These Colossian believers were, they were believers of Christ, but they were still struggling with sin, and so they looked for answers. How do I deal with my sin problem? How do I stop sinning? I'm so tired of sinning against God and having to ask for forgiveness. Well, that never stops until we see Jesus face to face. But he does continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds, and that doesn't happen until we have a new heart that's been placed there by him. But then he also talks about baptism in verse 12. He says, um, he says, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So there are many people, maybe you're not Jewish and you don't have struggle with the whole circumcision thing, but there are many people, like I said earlier, that they trust in their baptism to save them. But here's the deal. Baptism takes faith if it's done correctly. Does anybody in here have an idea of where the first baptism was in Scripture? Anywhere. Many people would probably say, well, John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance. He showed up on the scene. He said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Repent. Change your mindset. Decide to follow God instead of your own way. And then Jesus came on the scene and he said, I want to be baptized. John the Baptist, baptize me. And John's like, I can't baptize you. You're the son of God. I'm not even worthy to take your shoe off. But what did Jesus say? Do this so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. He wanted to do something that we could do to identify with him. We are baptized just like Jesus to identify with something our Lord did in submission to the will of his father. So we get to do the same thing. We don't have to to be saved. The thief on the cross is enough uh, evidence for that. But we can do it, and there's a blessing in doing something simple to obey the Lord. That we participate in something that the rest of believers all over the world do. They are taking down under the water a sign of dying to yourself, raised up in newness of life. Do you know when baptism started? It started with the Israelites in Exodus. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. We see the first time that God points at least... I, Correct me if I'm wrong when you find this out later, but I think that the first baptism was actually in Exodus chapter 14 by the people of God. Exodus chapter 14, the Red Sea crossing. The Lord said to Moses, verse 1, in Exodus 14, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and... that they turn and camp before Pi of Hirath, and between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land, the wilderness has closed them in, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So Moses was commanded by God to have them camp at this area. And essentially what God did is he put them in a spot where they couldn't deliver themselves. God will never put you in a place where you can't 
you know, like he's going to, he's putting them in a place where they need him. And before salvation, God allowed things, me to do some very dumb things that hemmed me into a spot that eventually I cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I can't deliver myself from this. And he said, good, because I want you to need me. And so he hemmed me into a corner, and he hemmed the nation of Israel into a corner here. They're stuck between the rock and a hard place. They've got Pharaoh's army chasing them from Egypt, and they've got the Red Sea on the other side. And many people say, well, the, the, the Israelites, they didn't really cross over in a deep place. They crossed over in the Reed Sea to the north. I say, uh, no, because if that was the case, then when he hemmed them in, they wouldn't have looked to God and said, Lord, what do we do? They'd have traipsed across the shallow water on their own. We have a tendency to do that, right? Back us into a corner, we'll find the easiest way out. But what happened is they were stuck between two things they couldn't deliver themselves from. They couldn't deliver themselves across the Red Sea. They didn't have a boat. That's the only way, right? And they couldn't deliver themselves from the Egyptians because they were an army with chariots. And these are just people that have escaped from slavery. They've got this stuff on their back. They've got their children and their families with them. So here they are stuck right next to the Red Sea. Verse 5, it says, It was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this? And we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot, took his people with him, also, he took 600 choice chariots and the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahirath before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. Can you imagine the fear that came into their hearts? God's delivered them from the nation of Egypt. They were slaves for 400 years. They come to this spot. We've made it this far, and now we're just going to die here. Because they knew the armies of the Pharaoh. They knew that they were relentless. They knew that they weren't just in a pickle. This was it. So this is how it goes. This is how we're going to die. They had probably given up hope. And so, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, they start complaining already, they say, Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? You set us out here just to die. Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever." The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So Moses doesn't know what's going to happen yet, by the way, but he knows that God is faithful. He's got them this far, and so he's going to deliver them through this instance. But Moses is against great opposition. It's not even the armies of Pharaoh. It's the people he's seeking to deliver. They've doubted. So, verse 15 
And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. Angel of God there is capitalized. So we believe that it's an Old Testament version or viewing of God himself. And many believe that it was actually a Christophany. Jesus in the Old Testament just showing up and doing something amazing. He went before the camp of Israel. He moved and went behind them. And the, kill, the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So remember that they were led by the pillar of cloud by day to shade them and to guide them. And they were led by a pillar of fire by night. So this was the presence of God seen with their physical eyes that they followed through the wilderness. So instead of being in front of them now to lead them, he's going to go behind them to be their rear guard. Because they're going this way, the enemy's coming from this way, so God gets between them and their enemies. How cool is that? And he does that for you and I. He leads us, but he also protects us. So he leaves from leading them, and he goes to protect them. And as he does this, it came, he, it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that one did not come near the other all that night. So not only are they next to the sea, not only are they being pursued, not only are they crying out to the Lord and complaining against Moses, but as the pillar of cloud goes behind them, it's to protect them from their enemies, but also to light their way to go the other direction. But here's the deal. They didn't just leave that night. They were there all night before the Red Sea parted, and they crossed over. You imagine that being a very sleepful night, a night full of sleep? Do you think they were probably concerned and stressed out, and how's this going to happen? And, you know, all night prayer meetings probably started there, you know? There are, and, and so here they are. They're stuck in this spot. The Lord has confirmed what he's going to do. He's told Moses what to do, and now they have to wait. How many of you guys like waiting? But in the waiting, in the midst of these trials, that's when we become acquainted with our God. Trials make us acquainted with our God. And so here they are, they're waiting. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, verse 21. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. It wasn't like Charlton Heston. Here it is, it's divided. It took all night. Why did the Lord do that? I don't know. Maybe he just wanted to spend time. He knew that they'd spend all night talking to him. He wants fellowship with you and I. And so as he parted the sea all night, he made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. The children of Israel went in in the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. It came to pass, verse 24, that in the morning watch, that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. He troubled the army of the Egyptians, and he took off their chariot wheels. 
so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Even their enemies knew that the Lord was on their side. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. The waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So there was fear of the Lord, which is good, and then there was belief in the Lord. They believed the Lord and what he had said in his servant Moses. So he confirmed that Moses was the prophet, he confirmed that he was a God able to save them and protect them and to deliver them. So what do we want to draw from this story? I spent a lot of time reading it. Well, as I was studying this passage, I couldn't help but see the parallel. Baptism is important. It's the way by which God delivers us. But it's, it, baptism in, in and of itself is not salvation if it's not done by faith. And what I like about this passage is it showed that they had to trust God because they were good as dead if they didn't. They had nothing to lose. They were already going to die. God told them, cross the sea. The Egyptians are a type of sin. Did you know that? They're a type of sin. When you get saved and you start following the Lord, the first thing that sin does is it haunts you down. Satan does not want to see you live victoriously. He wants to re-enslave you back to where you were. He doesn't want to lose his, his minions. He doesn't want to lose those who will do his bidding. And so he chases us down. The, the Egyptians chased the Israelites down. They didn't want to let go of them, and they chased them down to keep them as their slaves. But through baptism and being brought back up by God on the other side, they were delivered. So the Israelites trusted God, and this was a step of faith. But contrast that with the Egyptians. The Egyptians were baptized too, right? Did they go in there by faith, or did they go there by pride and trying to do what they wanted and to kill the people of God. One group crossed in obedience and trust, the other crossed with hardened hearts towards God. One group saved the other, excuse me, one group was saved and the other was destroyed. Baptism does not guarantee salvation. Baptism does not guarantee deliverance. As an act of obedience and with a soft heart towards God, baptism delivers us. But if it's only done because you feel like you have to and you're trying to do what you've always done, it's not going to save you. So, <clears throat> verse 15. Well, let's read um, verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, now he's speaking to those who are uncircumcised, the Gentiles, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. 
I like this because that's what I see in the story of the Egyptians being drowned in the sea. He not only defeated the enemies of the people of God, but then he triumphed over them. Remember, he said he was going to deliver them and make himself honored in the sight of Egypt. He did that. He made a public spectacle of them. And Paul's writing this to the Colossians who are in this this empire where when Caesar of Rome would defeat a colony or a nation— they would triumph, and that wasn't just to, you know, kind of like in the end zone, spike the ball and do a little chicken dance. This was to take their enemies and parade them in front of their nation and go, look who we conquered, and basically to make a spectacle of them, to not only conquer them, but to, to shame them in many ways, to show them, hey, I'm bigger than you, and the Lord that we serve is bigger than any of the enemies that we can have. And so Paul's writing to them, you don't need to be circumcised or baptized. That's not how you're delivered from sin. Trusting in the living God, spending time with Jesus, getting to know him in his word, that's going to deliver you. If Moses doesn't hear the word of the Lord and and obey and raise his staff before the Red Sea and part the Red Sea and tell them we're crossing over, if he doesn't hear from the Lord, there's a parted sea, but there's no deliverance. Does that make sense? So we can hear the commands of God and not do them as obedience to the Lord, and it doesn't avail us anything. And so in verse 15, we see that. And in verse 16 and 17, he continues on, and he says, So let no one judge you in your food or in your drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Don't let anybody judge you. They had been saved by Jesus and then infiltrated into the church and into their daily lives for these people that said, hey, have you done this, this, and this? You know, no, I just believe in Jesus. Oh, well, you got to ascribe to what I do. There's other things you need to be doing to grow in this. And what Paul writes here is don't let them judge you in what you eat or in what you drink or regarding festivals. He says these things were a shadow of things to come, but the substance was of Christ. They had these Old Testament feasts where the men of the family were called to go to Jerusalem and celebrate these feasts as an act of obedience for the commandments of the law. But he says you don't have to do that anymore because Christ fulfilled every single one of those. He says that was all about Jesus. And I think that's interesting because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says that very thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, he says this, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, came, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach God perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered? He says they go to the, the feasts every year and they make these sacrifices, but he, he later on says this, In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of their sins every year. For it is not possible, verse 4, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It would deal with them temporarily. It would cover them over. But if you sinned again, you need another sacrifice. And so what he says later on in verse 5 is he says, Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, speaking to his Father, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, you didn't have any pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. So Jesus came, and everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to him coming and fulfilling the law. So we don't have to fulfill the law. He says, Don't let anyone judge you in what you eat or drink, in the required gatherings that Israelites had to practice in order to keep the law. Don't let them judge you in the things that were pointed to Jesus, the Messiah. He came. They were there so that when he came, they'd recognize him. So then in verse 18 and 19, he says, let no one cheat you. So number one, Paul says, don't let these people judge you. Then verse 18, he says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels. Some of these people actually were telling them in order to, you know, like in a false sense of humility, they would say, well, I don't, you know, I worship God, but I worship angels because really God's too high to attain to. So, you know, in our version of worshiping God, we worship just the angels because we're not holy enough to worship God. Well, it sounds humble, but it was really false humility. And so he says, um, and that, you know, many of us don't understand that because we, we've never heard people tell us to worship angels, you know, but they had people telling them you need to worship angels. But he says this, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So he says, they're, they're doing all these things, but they're not holding fast to the head. They're like the chicken with its head cut off. They're disconnected from the head of the church, Jesus. And I think that's important we notice this. He says, don't let anybody cheat you. Don't let anyone declare you unworthy of a prize. Now, maybe you don't have people around you that say, hey, you're not good enough. Or Jesus, just believing in him is not good enough. Or you failed at this, and so God's not happy with you anymore. Because here's the deal. Maybe you don't have people saying that, but Satan will whisper that in your ears. He'll, he'll come to you when you're in a weak moment and say, you know, you say you trust Jesus, but look at your life, and he'll start, you know, you remember what you thought the other day, or what you said, and all those things. He'll, he'll tempt you to believe that Jesus isn't enough to forgive you, but we need to watch out. But what I like is that um, Warren Wearsby wrote this. He said, true worship always humbles a person. In other words, it doesn't puff us up. It doesn't make us prideful. True worship humbles a person. The mind is at awe of the greatness of God. The heart is filled with love for God. The will is submitted to the purpose God has for the life. The Gnostics were interested in deeper truths while ignoring God's word to get there. Their inner secrets only puffed them up in pride. They never softened their hearts or gave them willingness to submit to God. And Paul knew this from personal experience. He was, he was a Pharisee. He was one of the guys that said, you got to do this, this, and this. you got to follow this rule. you got to listen to this teacher. you got to do this thing. And, and Paul, thinking he was doing a service to God of the circumcision from the tribe of Benjamin, and he lists all these things in Galatians, but what he found out was that this lifelong service of God, he got to the point where he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, to gather them from their homes, to put them in jail, to stop the ministry of Jesus. And when he was on the way to do what he thought was God's will, God knocked him down, 
and he humbled him and he blinded him and he said to Paul, he said Saul at the time, he said, "What are you doing?" He he basically knocked him down and said, "You're persecuting my people." And Paul said, "Who are you, Lord?" He didn't even know the Lord that he claimed to serve. Because of his pious religion, he was blinded from the truth about himself. And then from that point on, Paul began to serve God zealously from a heart that was submitted to the will of God. And so we need to be careful because many times we have things that we've placed in our lives, whether they're religious or whether they're traditions of men, and they cause us to look away from Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1. The scribes and the Pharisees were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, and they said to him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, he wasn't saying, do they wash their hands or not? He was saying, they, they don't wash their hands like we do. That's what they were saying. So he answered them, and he answered them with a question. You ever have somebody answer you with a question and it annoys you? Well, Jesus did that, so I mean, you know, it's okay to be annoyed sometimes. But they said, why do they break the tradition of the elders and they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? And Jesus said, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, and he gives them an example, he says, God commanded that we honor your, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, see, he's com- quoting the word of God. He says, the word of God says this, but in contrast, you guys are teaching people this. That's dangerous, right? That's why we teach the word of God, because we don't want to replace our traditions with what God has said. Verse 5, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. He says, you're hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people, they draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart, which is the source of those things, is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so Jesus said to them, Why do you, by your traditions, transgress the traditions of the elder, or the, transgress the commandments of God? And we do that, don't we? I mean, we are way more prone to follow our traditions than the Word of God. It's just kind of built into us, whether it's something that we learn from our parents or our grandparents or something that we've learned from people that we admire, we're more willing to do those things many times than we are to simply obey the Word of God. It muddies the waters. And so he challenges them on this. And the Pharisees needed to be challenged, and so do we. You know, I I can many times be like that. Here, I'll tell you about the Pharisee and myself this morning. I was sitting uh, in my house getting ready to get dressed, and and I was thinking about what I was going to wear. And so uh, I was thinking, do I want to wear a button-up shirt like I always wear? Do I, wanna, I, I really wanted to wear a T-shirt. And I thought it was a good illustration because have you ever been to a church or known someone that if you came to church with them and you didn't wear the certain amount, kind of clothes, they would look down on you. 
be like, I can't believe you wore that. As if it's sin to wear a t-shirt or jeans or whatever. Now, I would say that many times we do need to be careful about what we wear to not uh, draw someone's attention away from the Lord. But also, uh, sometimes we need to wear something a little nicer so we don't stumble other believers. And, And we need to pray through those things. But is it sin to wear certain clothes to church and certain clothes not? No. But there are places where if you go there, and I've struggled with this personally because I'm a, a pastor, and so you'd think I wouldn't be stumbled by anybody. But I walked into a church one night, and they were having a Wednesday night gathering, and they were bringing in the community, and this, this young man had come in, and he'd never been to church before, and he's wearing a hat. You can't wear that in church. Why not? And he didn't ask why not. He just took it off. He's not like me. I'm rebellious by nature. But I'm sitting there going, this guy's never been here before, and that's the thing you're going to die. That's the hill you're going to die. He's never going to come back. What if he's having a bad hair day? You know, sometimes we need to practice a little mercy and grace. You know, I don't care if the kid's wearing a hat or not. I want to know if he knows Jesus. You know, but many times because we have certain expectations for sinners, we never even talk to them because they're wearing a hat in church. And, you know, God's only in the church, so you want to respect him there, right? But we need to be careful about the hills that we die on and the ones that we don't. For us, we might be stumbled by somebody coming in a suit and be like, man, they don't know the freedom they have in Christ. They probably don't even know the Lord. But that's not the case. We had a guy a few years back, uh, Eli knows him, uh, John McCarty, and he came to church one week. He was coming to church several weeks. And, And I thought, man, this guy... He goes all out. He, he didn't just have a suit on. He had a nice suit on. And his whole family would come in dressed very nice. Well, I found out later that that's the background they came from. And he's a businessman. That's what he wore to work. So when he got off work, he came in. And, and in all reality, I love the fact that the church I started going to where God really reached me, people felt comfortable coming in in their mechanics clothes covered in grease. And people felt comfortable coming in with a cowboy hat on. People felt comfortable coming in in their business suit. <laughs> they probably didn't feel comfortable around me. But I was keeping people from the Lord because I had built into my faith a tradition. And many times those traditions we put on other people, they rob us of joy because we're always stressing out about it for us. And so all of that to say we need to be careful. We really need to be careful that we're not trusting in what we wear or trusting in the appearance that something we're doing puts off. Because when we do that, we're attending to all these other things that have nothing to do with our heart. Proverbs says, keep your heart with all, diligent, all diligence because out of it is the wellspring of life. Out of it comes all kinds of stuff. And, and, and our hearts are really like a garden. The soil of our heart is so important. And many times we're, we're taking care of the weeds, but we're not getting rid of we're, We're cutting the weeds off, but we're not removing the roots. And God wants to remove the weeds in our hearts that will cause us to be separated from Him. If you trust in what you wear to church on Sunday, it's not a huge deal because God can work through that. But many times you become self-righteous in what you wear to church on Sunday. And then you start to trust less and less in what God said He's done for us in the gospel and more and more in what you wear or what you do. So I went way over, and I'm sorry. Let's close by reading the, the, the final verses in verse 20 through 23. He says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, in other words, you're no longer subject to these rules and these elementary principles, 
Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? And these regulations that he's talking about were, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And so let me ask you this morning, as God continues to work in your life, are you becoming more and more aware of your outward actions, or are you tending more and more to your inward heart? God wants to deal with our hearts. He wants us to be firmly established in the faith. He wants our roots, as we studied on, Wednesday, on Tuesday night with the boys, He wants our roots to be firmly established, continuing to grow deeper into Christ. But here's the deal. If we start growing deeper into other things, our roots stay on the surface. And when the sun comes, when the wind blows, when the rains crash down, it will only erode what we're trusting in. And Jesus wants us to be firmly established on him. And so, which one are you? Are you trusting in your religion? Are you trusting in your actions? Are you trusting in anything other than Christ? Because here's what Christ came to do. In Luke chapter 4, he says this. Jesus reading the scripture in Isaiah and saying, I'm the fulfillment of it. He says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to those who are captive and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at freedom or liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus, he came to preach the gospel to the poor, the poor in spirit, the poor financially, whatever. He sent me, Jesus says, to heal the brokenhearted. He's the only one that can. He sent me to recover the sight to the blind, to set free those who are captive to sin. And he said, set at liberty to free those who are oppressed. And God's people can still be oppressed by the dark rulers, by Satan himself, by sin. But God sent Jesus to set us free from those things. And he alone can do so. So, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word from Paul. Lord, I just confess to you my uh, consistently, over and over again, I have to really watch. I tend to trust in what I do, what I say, uh, the way things look to others. But Father, I don't want to live that way. And I know that these here don't either. We have the spirit of the living God within us. We want to be righteous in your sight, and I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. So Father, please, Help us not to draw near to you with our lips only. Help us not to be those who are defiled by our own conscience because we think we're good enough in your sight. Lord, help us not to be self-righteous, but help us to be righteous because of what you have done and to give thanks for that. Man, when we really look and gaze upon Jesus and see all that you've done for us, Lord, how can we not be thankful and have praise on our lips? Man, I don't deserve anything that you've done in my life, Lord, and And so, Father, I pray, give us proper perspective that we are righteous only because of what Jesus has done. He's paid it all. He's continuing to pray for us, and he daily wants to talk to us. Lord, give us direction. We've been delivered. 
We are yours, um, but we need delivered through this life. And so, Father, help us to constantly be reminded that our deliverance only comes from our relationship with you. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name, amen.